And this is not a test necessarily, but I just want to emphasize that the Bible tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That means from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. But my guess is that the majority of us here know from Matthew to Revelation and likely don't know a lot about from Genesis to Malachi. Now, the Bible is composed of 66 books. How many of them are Old Testament books? 39, right. 39 books of our Bible are the Old Testament. 27 of those books are the New Testament. So approximately one-third of the Bible is New Testament, and two-thirds and more is the Old Testament. I think some of us may hang our heads how little we know of the whole of the Bible, the Old Testament. Some of us might assume, too, that there's not a correlation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes it almost seems as if we're reading two different books. When we read the New Testament, all that it has to say, when we read the Old Testament, it almost seems like there's two different worlds. But let me ask you a few questions. But before I do that, I want to say the New Testament contains... Would you know how many verses the New Testament contains? You're going to say a, a third of the Old Testament, right? No. It, 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 about 8,7800 8, verses make up the New Testament. And of the 7,800 verses that make up the New Testament, approximately 1,000 of those verses have a reference to the Old Testament, either directly, indirectly, allegory, analogy, type, anti-type. So we have to understand that a good portion of our New Testament has to do with the Old Testament. Let me, let me give you a, a little sample of a test. When Jesus said to the disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? One of them began with the letter E. Who was it? Elijah. Elijah. Very good. <clears throat> Paul said that Hagar... In the book of Galatians chapter 4, was a type of what mountain? Hagar was a type of what mountain? Sinai, that's right. And you two in the back, you all back there, I bet you're a Bible reader, so speak up. Uh, Jesus accused the Sabbath, was accused of Sabbath breaking. And he used an example of someone who ate bread that was forbidden to be eaten by non-priest. Who was that? David. David. Okay. He went into the house of God in the town of Nob, N-O-B. There's a couple of examples already that we've read here where if you didn't know the Old Testament, you could be lost in the New Testament. What two cities did Peter write about as examples of those who will suffer eternal punishment? Sodom and Gomorrah. What book is that found in? What chapter? Okay, Genesis 19. What prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus was going to be struck by the Roman soldier, but soon discovered that he was already dead and there was not a need of it? That's right, so that he wouldn't want to break a bone of Jesus' body to fulfill the scriptures. What scripture would that be? Scripture that had to do with a Passover lamb, that not one bone of his body would be broken, and that's found in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46. 
Jesus made an analogy between him being lifted up on the cross and what else was to be lifted up, on, have been lifted up on a up, lifted up high. A what? A serpent that was put on a pole. If Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must I, the Son of Man, be lifted up. So there's an analogy between what Moses did, because when he lifted up that serpent, every eye that saw that serpent, it says immediately was healed of their disease, their deadly disease. Jesus is using that analogy to say, like Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must I, the Son of Man, be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in me will be what healed? More than that, will have eternal life. That magnified, Jesus is using the Old Testament to magnify the gospel of what he was about to accomplish. My point is simply the importance of understanding the Bible. And to understand the New Testament, you're going to have to understand the Old Testament. When I was first converted and I started reading like everybody else, and you were probably told like I was, start in the Gospel of John. Well, I started in the Gospel of John and I came across names and people and places and I said... I don't, I don't know who that is. I don't know who David is. I don't know who Moses is. I don't know Abraham. And all these different things. I said, I need to go back to the Old Testament. So I want to advise you to do the same thing. Be a reader of the Word. Now, we have a chart up here. Can we get that chart up in a second? If we could. Um, here is a, a chart that covers the whole Old Testament. If you were to go to a seminary or even a Bible school, college, I bet you would get a class called a survey of the Old Testament, right? What is a survey of the Old Testament? I'm going to give it to you in less than five minutes, which is not going to be easy. So we have right here, of course, the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we have, of course, the creation of Adam and Eve and, his, and the descendants. Then we have Noah in the flood. What, key, what is a key point? And everything is key, of course. But what is really significant is that God called a man from the east named Abraham. Now, do you know that name Abraham appears more than any other name in the Old Testament, in the New Testament? The other name that's most popular in the New Testament would be what? Moses. Moses and Abraham. One is 78 times. The other one is 80 times. Abraham becomes an extremely significant character, not just for the Old Testament historical era, but for the New Testament period as well. And we'll get to this. You might be wondering, what am I doing all this about? What does this have to do with eschatology? This is really just laying the foundation for what we're going to build upon in the coming weeks. So Abraham becomes a father of the nation of Israel. And to him was promise made that he would become a father of many nations. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So we're talking about the year 2000 B.C., 1800, 2000 B.C., when we have these men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and then the, the, the offspring of, of uh, Jacob's had the 12 sons, which comprised the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel uh, were nomadic people. They ended up in Egypt, remember, and they were fed providentially through Joseph, who had been sold into slavery, they remain in bondage for over 400 years um, here in Egypt. And then Moses comes along. God uses him as the great deliverer. He delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt. That begins in the book of Exodus. They leave Egypt and they come to the promised land. 
which we know as Israel or Palestine today. During this time period, Moses was viewed as a king of Israel, but not a full-fledged king, but he had a rulership as a king. Shortly after that, after Moses' calling and the Israelites going through the wilderness, there was a necessity for a priesthood to be established so that God could be approached by sacrifice. And that's the only way God can be approached, by sacrifice. This is how we make a covenant with God, is by sacrifice. So we have a whole system of sacrificial offerings in the book of Leviticus, Exodus as well, and we get, we get a lot of that in the New Testament reference as well. So the Levitical system, the priestly system, a priest is risen here in this age, and he is known as Aaron, the high priest, and you have Moses, and then you have a history after this of not only a king, which Moses sort of morphs into a king in a way, in that Saul becomes the first king, David his successor, Solomon, and then there's a whole line of kings in this period of time. Before the kings, though, there is the period of the judges. Can I have that other one? This is not the battery must be dying on this. But the book of Judges is another period of time which is the book of Judges, Joshua Judges. Then we get into 1 Samuel where we have the first kings, and the kings go on through the book of Chronicles. But in the middle of the books of the kings, there's a division that occurs. And there's a division, a significant division happens in the nation. There's a division between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in both cases, the kingdoms ended up becoming an enmity with one another. They vied with uh, animosity towards each other. A, a separate altar was, was erected in the northern kingdom, which was very different from what God had established to be the only place of worship, and that would be in Jerusalem, the place where the Lord had chosen to place his name. So you have the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has ten different tribes that are connected with Jeroboam, who separated himself from the Davidic line. The Davidic line is, are those in the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, were various tribes, and the first one had been Jeroboam. So that takes care of the book of King, uh, Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and then you have the period of the prophets. Prophets were prophesying during the period of the existence of the northern and southern kingdom. Both of these kingdoms were exiled. The first kingdom was the northern kingdom, and both of them because of their apostatizing. The northern kingdom was removed from the nation of Israel, from the land of Israel, in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. And they were scattered around the countries in the Mediterranean. We call this the Diaspora which is a, a spreading out of the people of God. And then 150 or so years later was when the southern kingdom was removed in, into Babylon. And it's in Babylon where Daniel, Daniel wrote his book, as you know. But before the removal of these kingdoms, God raised up prophets. That's where you get Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel were prophesying during these times about a coming judgment upon the nation. The books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel become important prophetic books to 
to the whole of the Bible, but particularly to the subject of prophecy. Because there are a lot of prophetic sayings that are mentioned in the books of what I just mentioned, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, that have future fulfillments. The question that we're going to be asking and trying to answer, are those prophecies that were prophesied by those prophets, were they fulfilled in the Old Testament era? Were they fulfilled in the New Testament era? Will they be fulfilled in a tribulation period? Will they be fulfilled in the millennium? Or will they be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth? That's where we will go. One quarter of the Bible is prophetic. So it's not wrong, of course, to talk about prophecy. It's probably one of the most difficult subjects to try to handle. But nevertheless, the Bible is loaded with different kinds of literature. The different kinds of literatures are what we call genres. And I must say, before getting into the genres, when these two uh, peoples, the northern and southern kingdoms, were removed into the nations and into Babylon, there was a return in about 536 to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom pretty much... They filtered in over the course of time, and that's where Galilee would have been, the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was looked down upon by the southern kingdom. That's why they said about Jesus, no good thing comes out of, out of Galilee or out of Nazareth. That was the northern kingdom. They were composed of a mongrel race. Galilee was later called the, Gal, the, the, the uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. Because a lot of Gentiles had infiltrated during the time that the northern kingdom had been expunged from the territory. So, there's a gap of time between the last of the prophetic writings, and of course the temple is re rebuilt. Nebuchadnezzar had come in and destroyed the temple in uh, about 586 B.C. And for 70 years... Israel was templeless. They were scattered. They were out of the land, but they also had no physical temple to go to. The only thing they could do is that's why when Daniel in the book of Daniel opens his window and he prays what? In the direction of where the temple is. Jews today, even Orthodox Christians, the way they set up their buildings is, is set up in such a way that their altar is facing towards Jerusalem. Interesting, isn't it? So, Israel is uh, brought back from captivity. The southern kingdom is brought back. That's where we get the book of uh, Nehemiah and, and Ezra. Israel returns in the southern kingdom. The temple is rebuilt. This is called the second temple. And then, again, all of these prophets are prophesying during this time period. And then there's a cutoff period, which we call right here the silent years. We have Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the last of the prophets, for 400 years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes into the world, he goes into the synagogue, he opens the scrolls, and he finds a place in Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. That word anointing means he has chrismated me, he has christianized me, he has anointed me with the oil that is the Spirit of God from heaven to make him a special vessel of God's purposes. And then he closed the book and it says, all eyes were upon him. Because he says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled.
filled in your ears. So this whole Old Testament period would be a time of expectation. And we can look at different types in the Old Testament that were foreshadowing the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. So when Jesus steps on the platform and opens up the scrolls, he says, this is the day the anointed one has arrived. And it says, and all eyes were upon him. What a day that must have been. What an appearance of a figure in that little synagogue. Uh, was it in Nazareth? That synagogue was what? Was it Nazareth or Capernaum? I forget which one it was. But whichever synagogue it was, it had daunted the crowd. Because all eyes were upon him. They marvel at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. But for 400 years, there was no prophetic word. We have no written scriptures during that time period. They're known as the hidden years. The Old Testament in the whole of the Bible is composed of various kinds of literature, which we call genres. And those genres of literatures would be, we have uh, narratives, we have poetry, we have wisdom, we have epistles, and then we have apocalyptic or visionary portions of the Old Testament. This morning, though, I want to talk to you, or this afternoon, I have to say, about the subject of census plenior. Some of you that may have gotten the email may have said, what does that mean? Maybe you looked it up. And simply, it simply means fuller meaning. But by fuller meaning, what do we mean? That, we're, that, that there's something that has a deeper or a fuller meaning than what it appears to have. And that's why the Bible is richer than any other literature ever written. Because what seems to be very superficial or on the surface has a meaning far deeper than what one would expect it to have meant. And we're going to look at some examples of that. Now, when Jesus comes into the world, incarnated, born of the Virgin Mary, lives for 30 years, what we call his silent years, because we only have two references to Jesus after his birth, and that is when he was circumcised at eight days old, and that's when he was, later when he was 12 years old, and he went with his family to Jerusalem to the temple. But Jesus was incognito during those whole 30 years. But then afterwards, like when he goes into the synagogue, opens up the scriptures, when he goes before John the Baptist and the Spirit of God descends upon him, when he comes out of the water in the voice of the Father that says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear him. So the, the attraction has arrived. Who comes and he says, don't think that I have come to destroy... I haven't come to destroy the law and the prophets. All that we were looking at, he didn't come to destroy them. He wasn't rewriting history. He wasn't in inventing the wheel over again. No, he says that it's not, I didn't come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. Till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle shall be passed from the law, till all will be fulfilled. So he came not to destroy, but to fulfill. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, it says, Christ is the end of the law. The law meaning the Old Testament was all like a signpost that was pointing, move forward. I'm not the parking lot. Go, move on. It's pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus is the goal. That's the, the meaning really of the word of Romans chapter 10. Christ is the goal of the law. Whatever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. 
what was written aforetime, things that were prophetical, pointing forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus, the most significant character in the whole of the Bible. So let's look then at some examples of census plenior, examples where we'll find what seems to be very narrative, very common, but yet it has a deeper meaning than what we would at first, and what they probably at first would realize. So the first text we're going to look at will be Genesis chapter 12 in verse 3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, that's you, Abraham, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that's an amazing sentence right there. In you, in you, Abraham, all the families, that means you and I, shall be blessed. How and when would that prophecy, and it is a prophecy, God is prophesying over Abraham of what was to come to pass. This, this man who was an isolated individual in the east is called by God, and God's telling him, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Let's look at the New Testament now. How does the New and the Old Testament relate? Galatians 3, 6, and 9. Just as Abraham believed God, what did he believe? That he was going to be a father of many nations. How? That in his seed, all nations would be blessed. And it was counted to him for what? Because he believed God as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You and I, brother and sister, are children of Abraham. We are connected spiritually to Father Abraham. We, we were not a part of the original ethnic family of Abraham's descendants. I, I was giving tracts at one time in downtown, and uh, a Jewish lady uh, came up, and I talked to her, and she said, Oh, I'm Jewish. She said, I, I don't uh, have anything to do with us. I said, Oh, really? You're Jewish? I said, So am I. Now, she looked at me. My hair was a little blonde, and my eyes were a little brighter. She said, You're Jewish? I said, Yes, yes. I said, Really, let me tell you. I said, Abraham had a promise given to him that he would be a father of many nations. And I'm one of those nations who, like Abraham, believed God. And I, too, then have the faith of Abraham, which makes me a spiritual descendant of Abraham. And I'm a part of the Abrahamic family. She was blown away. You're a child of Abraham. I am a child of Abraham. And I could have gone on to say, guess what? You're cast out because if you don't believe, you're not, you're not a child of Abraham's, which means you're not a child of God even because they go together. If you're a child of Abraham spiritually, you're a child of God spiritually as well. Let's look at another verse. So we see that's an example of uh, him being a father of many nations. Like it, let's look at this one. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Again, this is why it's important that we be readers of the Old Testament. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. There's no one hardly at all in the Bible that can talk about Jesus in the future as being like him. But Moses has a word from God stating that the Lord is going to raise up for you a prophet. You would be the nation of Israel and others, a prophet like me, that's like Moses from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Now, who would that be? A prophet greater than me, one who you will listen to. Let's go over to the book of, uh, is it uh, Acts? Which one do we have next? 
Acts chapter 3. This is Peter preaching, Acts 3, the second Pentecost, I call it. Moses said, the Lord your God, quoting from Deuteronomy 18.15, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now notice this. You shall listen to him, that's to Jesus, in whatever he, Jesus, tells you. In the book of Hebrews it says, if they refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we refuse him that speaks from heaven. The greater prophet than Moses has arrived. You know, for a Jew to say that Jesus is greater than, than, than uh, Moses would to some be considered blasphemous. But it's right out of the scriptures. And Peter inspiration is preaching to Jews. And he says, he's the one that Moses spoke about. A prophet greater than him. And every soul that will not hear him will be destroyed from among the people. Now, Jesus wasn't even on earth. And yet, Peter is saying, he is speaking, and if you don't hear him, you will be destroyed. That's pretty serious stuff. So we have a reference to a greater and another prophet. Next. Remember, we are talking about census plenior, a fuller meaning than what would be originally understood and how it was fulfilled. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Next verse, 11. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What is this rest? Psalm 95 would have been written probably 500, 600, 700 B.C. They have not entered my rest. Couldn't be, re- couldn't be referring to Israel coming out, out of Egypt, going into the promised land. That couldn't have been the final rest. But what does the book of Hebrews tell us? And again, in this passage, which we just read, they shall not enter my rest. Keep going. Since therefore it remains, it remains, it hadn't been fulfilled. It remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter in because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The last verse, 8. For if Joshua, which is an Old Testament name for Jesus, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there's another example where the rest that Israel was going into, into the promised land, land becomes a type of a future rest that the New Testament says that God's people have now entered into. If you remember what we read in Romans, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 9 about things that have already come. I like the way the NIV translates it, actually. Things in the Old Testament that were written about the future and the New Testament writer of Hebrews is saying those things have already come. They've arrived. They're here. And one of those things is the rest that we enjoy now. Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the kind of rest that we enjoy being New Testament people. Next, the next one. Now we have a, a different priest. The Lord has, Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there was only one priesthood and there was only one order of priests, and that was the order of the Aaron or the Aaronic priests. God, in Psalm 110, is referring to another priesthood, another priest after the order of Melchizedek. Who could that be? 
for centuries, Israel was uninformed, unaware of who and how that would come to pass. But now let's read what it says in the New Testament about this Melchizedek. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now, I want to stop and pause on this verse for a moment. We must agree that there's another priesthood that exists. We're told that we have a high priest that has passed into the heavens, right? Jesus is our great high priest. He's not a high priest after the order of Aaron. He's after the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because Melchizedek had neither a beginning of days nor end of life. There's no mention of his father or mother or, or when and how he died, if he died. No mention of it whatsoever. But he's called Melchizedek, which means a king priest. Interesting. So that's the kind of priest that we have. Not like an Aaronic priest who wasn't a king, who also didn't live forever. They died. When Aaron died, his son Eliezer took his place. When he died, his son took his place, and on and on and on. But Jesus never dies. He lives forever, and he intercedes for us as our eternal high priest. What a contrast between the two. And because of this, because we have a different priesthood, it says there must of necessity be a change in the law. What law? The Levitical law. Think of it. Would it not be inconsistent, and we'll get to this down the road, and this is my judgment here, would it not be inconsistent of God to have said that we have a perpetual high priest of a different order, and there's therefore no necessity to have offerings and sacrifices? Why then would there be any significance or point to a reconstructing of another building with more sacrifices with a different priesthood coming into the future? And that's what a lot of Christians believe, and Jewish people as well believe the same thing, that the temple is being reconstructed. But the point is, we have another priesthood, a Melchizedek priesthood. And it has made a change in the law as well. And let's look at the next one that has to do with the new covenant, I believe. Jeremiah 31, another Old Testament verse. What does it mean? Behold, the days are coming. They hadn't arrived, not in the Old Testament even. Declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Keep going. In the New Testament, 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What is this referring to? New Testament says, in speaking, go ahead, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one. This is Hebrews 8:13. He makes the first one obsolete. What was the first one? The first one was established in Exodus chapter 24. When Israel was coming out of Egypt, God had established a covenant relationship with Israel. When Moses took both the blood and he, he sprinkled both the book and the people and ratified the covenant with Israel and they became his covenant people. But that covenant, we are told, it was weak, unprofitable. It's been being replaced and has been replaced by the new covenant. As it says here, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one that I just mentioned in Exodus obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete 
Notice, it was becoming. That's why we have in the book of Acts, the, the early Christians were still going to the temple. Uh, Paul took a vow. Uh, the, the glory cloud, you could say, was lifting and moving away from the temple. And that's becoming less and less significant. And now it's where the two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst of them. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the hour is coming in the which, what? They shall neither go to Jerusalem nor in this mountain will they worship. But the true worshipers are going to worship the Father in spirit and truth. How are they going to do that? Where the two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's the church. We are the church. We are the people of the new covenant. He makes the first one obsolete. So there is a problem when one tries to bring back law practices into an age of progression from the Old Testament, which was mocked by sacrifices and offerings, by a priesthood, ironic priesthood, by uh, things that could be touched, etc., etc. Let's go on to the next one. I know I'm running late here. This is all, these are all very, very important. Zechariah 6, again, another prophecy in the Old Testament. And say to him, thus saith the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch. You know the word Nazareth? The, the root meaning of the word Nazareth is branch. He shall be called a Nazarene. That word has a, re- a reference to branch. Whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place and he shall build what the temple of the Lord. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Read verse 13. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. That's I'm Melchizedek, high priest. And the council of peace shall be between them both, king and priest. Wonderful. He shall build the temple of the Lord. How is Jesus, or how is that prophecy being fulfilled in the New Testament? Look more specifically in Ephesians 2, 20 to 22. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, keep going, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Next verse. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the temple of the living God. He will build the temple of the Lord. In the book that I wrote, which is, uh, no one knows that I've written a book and it's not popular even with me. Uh, It's called Hermeneutical Flaws of Dispensationalism. The way I begin the book is by saying, uh, on Amazon. You can get anything on Amazon, even my book. Um, It's way overpriced. I get no royalties from it, so don't think you're doing me a favor. Uh, It's all going to a a different cause. But... uh, the first words that I say, do we, do, are we supposed to believe that Jesus will, with hammer and nail, rebuild a temple? Or do we believe that Jesus is the builder now, building a spiritual house of God's people who are forming the temple of God? So Zechariah says that he shall build a temple of the Lord. He will be the builder of it. Okay, uh, let's go on. Got a couple more. Uh, Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Hold on one second. The first part. My servant David shall be king over them. 
One of the titles that Jesus takes in the New Testament is that he would be the son of David, okay? That's an important point, his relationship to David in a kingly fashion, and he is the one who's sitting on the throne of, 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 of David right now. We have the sure mercies of David, and he's building the tabernacle of David right now, Acts chapter 15. We'll get into that more down the road. Okay, let's see how David shall be the king in verse 10. And again, it says rejoice. This is from Romans now. And again, it is said, rejoice. O ye Gentiles, that's what we are, non-Jews, with his people. That's Jewish people who believe as well. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Keep going. One more verse. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Notice this, who rises to, to rule. He's the king, brothers and sisters. He's the king of the Gentiles right now. And in him, in Jesus, the Gentiles hope. My hope on nothing less is built than Jesus and the blood he spilt. He's risen to reign, and he's over the house of God. He's the builder of the temple. Let's go to the last one. Now, this one is going to be a different kind of one. Because we can't, and we're going to get into this more as well. Israel's back in the land. They were scattered, were they not? We, we read about that way back in the Old Testament. Um, they were scattered after the, the, the temple destruction in 70 A.D. and more completely in the, uh, the rebellion of Kokhbah, which I believe in 135 A.D. And Israel had been a desolate land from 100 and, around 100 uh, A.D. till it came back in the late 18s and early 1900s. So this is a promise that was made to David. I will give you into your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan, which is Israel, Palestine, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, let's ask that question. What about this land of Canaan that he is supposed to have as an everlasting possession? Has that happened yet? Let's look at Joshua 21, 43 to 5. Thus saith the Lord, thus the Lord gave to Israel, rather, all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. Go back to what we just, don't turn back what I mean. Genesis 17, 8, I will give unto you the land, what? For an everlasting promise. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. Where? In the land that was promised, and it goes on to say, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Joshua 21, 43 and 5 here says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. So the question we have to ask then, when Israel went into the land, uh, according to Joshua, at this point in history, was that a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise about the Jews or his, his uh, descendancy inheriting the land of Israel? We're not going to answer that question today because I have more to say about the land and the land promise. Next week, God willing, uh, next time I speak, I'm not going to be here next Sunday, but the following, I'm planning on speaking on the Jew in Israel, uh, in the church. The Jew, Israel, and the church. 
how do these all correlate to one another? It's very important that we begin to understand. And again, I'm trying to lay the groundwork. I'm hoping that through what you've heard this morning that you will see how the, the New Testament and Old Testament relate. Augustine said these words. Can, can you get those words up if you could, um, if you can find it? It's a very important statement that says, The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. That is a very important hermeneutical tool to understand. That the New Testament, who would have thought that all of these prophecies that we read about, the, the, about the priest and the king and so on and so forth, the covenants and, and whatnot, that those would all have a counterpart uh, in, the, in, uh, in the New Testament. That there's a relationship. We call this an antitype. A figure in the New Testament that has its counterpart in the Old Testament. So, this is sort of the groundwork as we begin to try to unfold how prophecy gets fulfilled. And the question, the big question that we're going to have to ask, and one of them would be like the land promise, what about that land promise? The Jews that came back in, well, 1917, they became a nation in 1948. They had significant wars. They overcame the Palestinians there, and they still dwell with them in, in a, not a peaceful settlement, but they are both settled in the lands as independent peoples, uh, both of them not claiming that the other one has a rights to the land or even as being called a nation. We're going to get into that. There's a lot of different things that I think are very important for us to understand because we're talking about prophecy, things in the future. So the land that Israel is in today, is that a fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham? That it's occurring right now. And many Christians promote that idea. And they don't like to use the word Zionism because that has a secular ring to it. And it certainly does because a lot of sec. And we're going to talk about the Jews uh, next time I speak on modern Jews, historic Jews, uh, where they dwell, the population of Jews, the practices of Jews. There's a, there's a, uh, a, uh, a naive understanding among Christians that the Jews are one peoples, that, they, that their religion is, is all, they're unified. They have more sects among them than even in Christendom, so to speak, in, in a way. There's multitudes of different sects among them, the Orthodox, the Ultra-Orthodox, the Hasidics, the Reformed, the Conservatives. And then you have the largest population of Jews are secular Jews. They're not religious at all. As a matter of fact, many of them, like in Einstein and others, they were atheists. Freud, a, a key character in, in a psychology, was, a, was an atheist. So just because someone's a Jew doesn't give them that necessary. And, of course, I don't ever want to come across anti-Semitic. That's not it at all. I love the Jewish people. I love to talk to them about their heritage and my heritage and where they intersect with one another and how that we with them can be one people of God together as the church knows no distinction between the Jew the Gen or the Gentile. We're one. We're all washed in the blood of the Lamb. I don't care what nationality or what color or race you are for that matter. I want to know you belong to the people of God, that Christ is your king, and that you're a part of the royal family of God. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Wow, those are kind of words that you would think belong to the nation of Israel. In closing, I want to say, I'll preach it up one time. It says, let's open our hymn books. And everybody went under the pew and they grabbed their hymn book. And he noticed what they did. And he says, no, I don't mean 
the hymn books, I mean the H-I-M book. That hymn book. And that's what the scriptures is all about. Jesus opened up the scriptures to the disciples in Luke 24, after his resurrection. And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them all things concerning himself. And he opened the eyes of their understanding that they might understand. And while they understood, the fulfillment was taking place. This is a glorious subject. It's not an easy one. I hope you can bear with me and, and sit tight. I don't have the who the Antichrist is for you today. So just keep your seatbelt on. Don't go anywhere. Let's close in prayer. And Brother Mike can close in. Father, thank you for our gathering this morning, Lord. Thank you for the truth that is in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that the Holy Scriptures point us to him and that all things will be fulfilled in our blessed Lord Jesus. Help us, O oh God, as we go through this difficult topic of eschatology, as we try to learn more, Lord, about what is the goal, what is the ultimate end, Lord, that you have in mind as you are truly behind history. It's really your story, his story. And, Lord, may you help us unfold that in a way that will bring edification to us and will bring glory to you. And, Lord, if someone here doesn't believe on you right now, Lord, have mercy upon their soul. Cause them to realize that Jesus is risen, that he is king, he's reigning, and that they must bow their knee and submit themselves to him and call on him out of a contrite heart and be saved. Lord, have mercy on them, we pray, as we give you praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen.